0: I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. It's like that old alleged Willie Sutton quote about, I rob banks because that's where the money's at. Well, that's the same thing when it comes to industrial espionage.
1: Welcome to the Stratfor podcast. From Stratfor.com, I'm your host, Ben Sheen. On this episode of the podcast, what happens when espionage is just too effective, and also strategies for managing risk.
2: Hi, I'm Fred Burton. And I'm Scott Stewart. Scott, corporate espionage is a global threat, and security programs need to be too. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think it's important for us to stress that. Uh, you know, as you and I have talked about before, in many security programs, we really kind of have a double standard. So if you have, say, an executive who's traveling to a, a country who, that's seen as safer. Say, like, a place like, like
2: Canada, Canada or for example?
0: Yeah, or, or the, the U.K. or even places in the U.S., uh, the standards for you know how that that employee can travel what he can take with him as far as proprietary information is far different than uh, say an employee going to a hostile or you know quote unquote hostile country like uh, like China or or Russia
2: I know I we get all kinds of questions as you know uh, especially in the threat lens format uh, regarding executives traveling to China or Russia but it, it seems like most people forget that the threat uh, also exists in other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, and that's what we're really trying to to get at with uh, you know with, with the piece that I published you know a couple weeks ago. It's really focusing on this idea that the threat is global, and basically, especially these uh, sophisticated actors, uh, you know, they will go where the information is. You know, it, it's like that that old uh, alleged uh, Willie Sutton quote about you know I, I rob banks because that's where the money's at. Well, that's the same thing when it comes to industrial espionage. You know, the people that are looking for your information are going to go to where they need to to get that information.
2: It's almost, Scott, I know just as we digress back to our uh, U.S. government careers, uh, there's almost a psychological aspect of this that uh, people tend to lower their guard when they're traveling to places like Western Europe, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely, because they just don't see it as being as dangerous. And as you and I know, you know, during the Cold War, there were a lot of, uh, you know, KGB officers and CIA officers who really made a lot of hay being able to recruit uh, sources in in these third world countries, you know, India, Africa, other places, more so than, say, in in Washington or Moscow.
2: Of course, you look at some of these areas, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, where you don't have robust uh, local intelligence services. Therefore, when you have nation state actors like uh, Russia they're able to pretty much operate wherever they would like.
0: Yeah, they're, they're really unhindered. But I, I also think it's a mistake to focus just on those places too. You know, when we talk about global, it means global. And, uh, you know, even in the, the U.S. here, you know, I keep thinking back to the number of cases that we've had of insider sources at places, you know, like Apple and their autonomous vehicle operations or, you know, some of the, the operations that we've seen of the Chinese reaching out by LinkedIn. Uh, to recruit, say, you know, GE engineers in Cincinnati. Uh, it, it really does illustrate the fact that it's it's a global threat.
2: Are there any areas, do you think, uh, just thinking through this, that, that you would feel that are more vulnerable, or is this the kind of, of uh, phenomena that, as you think through this, uh, we should be looking at it from a comprehensive perspective with just like a global overarching umbrella?
0: No, it really has to be comprehensive, and it really, you know, when we talk about, you know, kind of the, you know, protecting against this threat, it really has to start with identifying what your your real secret sauce is. You can't protect everything, and no. when you try to protect everything, you're protecting nothing. So what you really need to do is identify that which is truly critical, and then you know take actions to to really. Uh, limit the access uh that people can have to that in, in terms of the number of people who can access it, but also how they can access it uh, or how they can access that information.
2: And I also think, Scott, it starts in many ways with the C-suite too. I mean, how many CEOs uh, have – have we engaged with or been aware of over the years that, uh, well, I'm only going to New York. Uh, what's the real vulnerability there?
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I recall probably uh, over a decade, maybe 15 years ago, a CEO having his uh, laptop stolen after he gave a presentation at a dinner in San Francisco. Definitely is the kind of thing that happens you know, even here in the United States.
2: As you look at this from a awareness perspective, do you think it begins there, or how should multinational corporations... Uh, remind the employees without uh, beating them over the heads or inundating them with the risk. It's the same phenomena that IT has at times with you know where is that careful balance of uh, good business practices uh, or notifications and and when does the workforce say, you know I, I can't take any more of these alerts from security or IT.
0: Yeah, I think that there is a danger of, of you know, kind of overhyping things. But at the same time, the threats are very real. And we see examples of, you know, companies losing potentially billions of dollars uh, due to their intellectual property walking out the door. And so, uh, I, I mean, you, you can't hype it too much. You can't uh, make people totally paranoid. But at the same time, you have to have programs in place. Uh, that do a good job of really educating your people about the threat, uh, what it is and what it isn't. I think it's also very important, Fred, to understand and to stress that while cyber is one of the tools uh, that is frequently used in cyber espionage, it's not all of cyber espionage. Uh, you know, we really need uh, the, these educational uh, programs to focus on really the human threat, uh, the human intelligence threat, and how uh, the, these corporate spies will also use that.
2: Let's talk a little bit about that. When you say the human aspect of that, uh, what do you really mean?
0: Well, what I mean is that the fact that we, we've had a number of cases, and, and, and there, there have been different types of, of human agents. I mean, we, we have, in, in essence, in, in some cases, what we, we in the old days we would call a walk-in, uh, where you've basically had employees of American or Western companies uh, who have access to sensitive information, Grab this information and then use it to approach competitors, saying, Hey, you know, I've got, uh, you know, 500 gigabytes of data from this sensitive program. Uh, What will you pay me for it? Or what kind of job will you offer me in China if I come to work, you know, for you with this information? Uh, At the other end of the spectrum, there are kind of moles that are sent in specifically to take jobs in these companies to gain access to the desired information. And then there's kind of in the middle, you have agents who are recruited and who have access to the information that's desired. Um, I also think it's important, uh, you know, especially with the the Chinese threat. uh, You know, traditionally, there was this thought that the Chinese only recruit ethnic Chinese. That is clearly not true. What we're seeing is they will recruit anyone who has access to the information that's required. And so we see them, there was an AMSC case, uh, a semiconductor case, where they actually recruited a Serbian engineer working for the Austrian subsidiary of an American company. You know, we've seen them go after engineers in places like Cincinnati. It doesn't just have to be ethnic Chinese that they're going to target.
2: And also the unique jobs that certain individuals may fill. I mean, if you hearken back to the days when we were looking at these kinds of threats in the government, uh, you know, the old uh, guidance that let's try to recruit the uh, ambassador secretary because they have access to schedules and all the inbox and meetings and so forth. Uh, Would you say that there's specific jobs that are much more advantageous to that nation state intelligence service for targeting?
0: We do seem to see them targeting a lot of engineers, uh, you know, that have access to kind of like the technical data that they're, they're seeking. Uh, I think also another class that's important to keep an eye on are IT personnel, um, because in many cases they do have the keys to the kingdom and they not, may not be the technical employees. Um, but, but while perhaps an adversary can't get something through a hack, if they can recruit an IT guy on the inside, Uh, they can get what they want without having to necessarily physically hack into the company.
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, And when you look at the Internet of Things and how multinational corporations or pretty much any business does work today, uh, who doesn't lean heavily upon uh, that staff to help in in all facets of whatever you might be doing?
0: Absolutely. And in many cases, as we've seen, you know, think about even past kind of governmental cases, people like Snowden uh, who are contractors. Certainly within your own corporation, if you think about, you know, some of the contract uh, employees. And in many cases, the IT staff can be among some of the least, you know, highly paid. Uh, so so they are, you know, the, the the lowest paid employees in your company. So they're kind of vulnerable to uh, an approach with the financial hook.
2: As you take away uh, from your your piece you wrote uh, on this topic, any things that uh, you wish you had said but didn't?
0: Uh, you know, certainly we can't overemphasize enough the, the threat that's out there and the fact that it really does need to be addressed globally. You just can't have a piecemeal approach that treats information at facilities in Europe or in the U.S. differently than it does uh, you know, information in a place like China or Russia uh, because it's really all vulnerable to a number of approaches. And uh, that's why it's just so important to really identify what's important to really vet and limit the, the employees who are ac- able to access that a- and then to really just you know continue to keep a careful watch for tradecraft. And that's another thing I, I guess it, maybe it would have been good to expand on, the way that the tradecraft keeps evolving that we're seeing used in these cases. So it's really important for security personnel to watch those tradecraft changes and then to adjust their security procedures in response to try to uh, stop those tactics being used against them.
2: Scott, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, For more information, or for those of you interested in uh, Scott's piece, uh, please visit www.stratfor.com.
1: If you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com slash enterprise if you have a question about this podcast or even an idea for the next one please email us at podcast at stratfall.com and if you have a moment we'd love it if you left a review on itunes or wherever you listen we really appreciate your feedback and for more geopolitical intelligence links and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events be sure to follow us on twitter at stratfall thanks again for listening